Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On this episode, a banjo player who asks how the stories of the past influence the music of the present. Rhiannon Giddens is a musician from Greensboro, North Carolina, whose career has ranged from folk to country, blues to gospel, opera to R&B. Her old-time string band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, have received six Grammy nominations, winning in 2010 for their album Genuine Negro Jig. In 2017, Rhiannon received a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant for reclaiming African-American contributions to folk and country music and bringing to light new connections between music from the past and the present. At Ireland's Edge, she speaks to music journalist Jim Carroll about race, history and the banjo. Tonight's our guest is this amazing woman. Her name is Rihanna Giddens. And I'm just going to read basically, Rihanna, what, what, you, what you said on the Facebook post about yourself. I started singing at an ungodly age, standing in my crib and warbling at passing family members. I didn't really think of it as a career until I went to the School of Science and Math and realised I never want, again want to do an algorithm. So you went to the Oberlin Conservatory and you did the whole opera recital thing. And then you burned out and discovered the banjo. The rest is history. That's a pretty good opening statement. Can we start with the banjo? I love to start with the banjo. Tell, tell us about your love affair with the banjo. Well, I mean, I had been surrounded by uh, the sounds of the banjo since I was a kid, but it was like the bluegrass, you know, kind of side of it or the sort of Pete Seeger folky kind of side. Mm. And it wasn't until I was an adult, had come back from college, that I discovered the old time, sort of the older style, the claw hammer, what we would call claw hammer. And there was something in that sound that really attracted me and it really just like spoke to me and then it was it wasn't until I was already hooked that I found out the true history of the banjo which you know I along with many other Americans sort of had this assumption that the banjo was a white you know invented sort of mountain instrument only and then I found that it was actually an African-American instrument invented by you know descendants of Africans in the Caribbean and my mind was blown so mm-hmm. It not only was a really important starting place for my journey within folk music, but it also has really kind of directed everything that I've done since then, just the whole idea of something that was was so obvious to me being completely wrong yeah. and kind of going, okay, what else is there yeah. <laughs> that I don't yeah. know, you know? Because there's a great quote you have where you said, like, I mean, there's, there's so many things you're not taught about history at school. There's so much things you're not taught about co- history at college even. Yeah. That when you go on to discover it for yourself, you have a whole new appreciation of it. So t- tell us then about your, like, me and your journey with the banjo because, like, I mean, at some stage after that, you basically formed, you were, you were kind of a, a co-founder of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, you know, that whole that whole question of like, what else is there? What else don't I know? Kind of, you know, comes out of that. And, and the, the, my fellow sort of adventurers that we formed the, the Carolina Chocolate Drops together, we were all kind of wanting to talk about this, you know, and also what surrounded it, which is black string band music. Mm-hmm. So we were very fortunate to find uh, a living proponent of, of black string band music from like the earlier style who was still alive and still playing in his 80s. He was 85, um, named Joe Thompson, and he mm-hmm. lived in Mebane, North Carolina. And so the three of us would go down and we would, and he played fiddle, and we would go down and play with him and we'd play his tunes. And I didn't even know then how important that was going to be. But we just thought, oh man, this is a black elder in this tradition that we can learn from. It's not a record. It's a living tradition. And it had been passed down from his father and, you know, sort of wow. as an oral tradition. And we were very fortunate to to get that. I mean, he'd, he'd been playing, his, he was the last of his family, you know, his, his brother, he used to play with his brother and his brother died, then his cousin, then his cousin died. And there were white folk in the community that had 
you know, kind of kept him going, which was amazing. But in terms of his community, the black community there in, in Mebane, he was the last one. And in fact, the last one of any black community doing that music anywhere in the South that we know of. You know, he like we don't know of anybody else who was around. He, he was just it was an amazing kind of like freak of the universe that his family continued playing this older music far past when other communities it had completely died out and they were the community musicians they played for the white square dances and the black square dances because you know everybody used to do that and so it it was a really I can't really stress how important that that was to be at the foundation of sort of my journey into this music I mean that's a serious link and when you when you you and the other musicians talk to Joe talk to Mr. Thompson did he talk about like I mean this was the way the banjo had went from like I mean from one side to the other the way it went from being kind of this amazing African American instrument to being taken over by like I mean like I mean white people by paddies by everyone else he didn't really think of it that way you know I don't think he really I mean he was aware that he was the last and he was excited that we were coming around and and he kind of felt like I think that we were t- we were carrying it on, you know, in his community, which was I think important to him. Even though he was he would teach anybody who came by, I mean, yeah. black, white, purple, whatever. But he, you know, for him it was a family tradition, and I, I think because he doesn't have this sort of overall, he's just playing the music. Yeah. He grew up playing it. He was five, you know, when he started, and it's it's kind of like people like that are so in it; they're not really looking from out here because he's still living in the same place he was born <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. in, in the same in the same town doing the same thing and so it really takes uh, our kind of our generation coming in and sort of being able to pull out and see that but also having that connection of that tradition so it was just we were very very fortunate and then I found out later a um a man named John Sullivan wrote an article for The New Yorker, and he did the research that connected Joe Thompson's tradition all the way back to a man named Frank you know, Johnson, who bought himself out of slavery with his fiddle and created a string band out of his family that he also bought out of slavery. Yeah. And then he taught a guy who taught a guy who taught a guy who taught a guy who taught Joe who taught us. And it's just like to have that kind of connection, especially in a culture where those kind of connections are few and far between, like in terms of tangible things. You know, our families were torn apart so many times and the records were so, you know, it, it, yeah, it was a really, that was an amazing moment to, to know that not only how important Joe was, but to know that we could even link it all the way back to the, to yeah. the days of slavery. It was just incredible. Mm. I remember reading that John Jeremiah Sullivan piece in New Yorker, and I remember rereading it a few times because I was just trying to get my head around all the way he was, he was, he was pushing it back. And like, I mean, I'm someone who's not a musician and who's not from that community. So I can imagine for someone like you, as you get to dive into it, I mean, that becomes a touchstone. You're going back to again and again, you realizing the roots of where it's all coming from. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's research I've been doing anyway. So it connected all these dots. You know, when you, when you think about the banjo, like, Banjo's invented, um, it's kind of an amalgam of different West African sort of lute systems and and it becomes the banjo in the Caribbean and then it's brought up with African-Americans, you know, Afro-Caribbeans brought up into the United States and then it, right, you know, for many years it is known just as a black instrument. It's not until the 1820s and 30s that white performers start to take it up and of course it's it's a part of blackface minstrelsy which is one of the reasons why we can't talk about it but we have to you know because this is one of the ways that cultural transmission was happening it was happening here it was happening working class people together it was happening on the boats and the waterways irish people black people you know like it was just all of this 
all of this mixing going on, and that was fueling what was happening in minstrelsy. But you know, they they took up the banjo, and then it became black instrument and a white instrument, but mm-hmm. still an emblem of Black America at this point. And it's not until the early 1900s that it makes that switch. And and this is the thing that has become essential to my work is it's not that we left the banjo. See, people always ask me, why did black people stop playing it? Well, there's multiple reasons, but we have to remember that it was also suppressed. That knowledge was erased. Mm -hmm. The idea of the black string band, which was once like this huge, it's like the forms, the basis of like, so much American music completely taken out of the narrative. And it was done on purpose by white supremacists in the early 1900s. I mean, they weren't even hiding it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all there if you want to dig into it. And it's hard to read, but it's important because it's not enough to know, okay, this was, you know, this fact is something we don't know. Why don't we know it? Mm-hmm. And who doesn't want us to know it? And so those further questions is what has driven me since the banjo. It's because it's like, the more that I dig, the more that I find the division that's happening right now, it all has seeds in this earlier cultural segregation, which is exactly what happened. You know, it's, as soon as you have the advent of the recording industry, as soon as you have, you know, these things going on, when, when stuff is being recorded, it's being remembered, and they have to, it has to be remembered a certain way, right? So yeah. people are saying, oh, this has to go in this box, this goes in this box. This is what happened back then, even though that's not true, you know, because we have to have this ethnically pure sort of white imaginary thing, you know, so there's all of these things going on that contribute to nowadays people are like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, including myself. I yeah. didn't know either. And I was born and raised in North Carolina. I went to family reunions every year, 20 minutes away from where Joe Thompson lived in the same town, just on the opposite side of the town, didn't know he existed, you know? So mm. this is how history is hidden in plain sight. And so it's just, that's been... I get a little worked up. It's, well, it's, it's part of my every, every right to be, because <laughs> also what, you, what you've explained there as, as well is the true line in your work. You know, I mean, like, you know, like when you look at kind of like your work as, as an outsider, like me, you think, okay, it's all about collaborations, but like you just completely blew that argument away. It's about this, it's, it's the true line going back to that tradition which has been written off and hidden. It, it, the thing is, like, what gets erased out of this when you take out, say, like a whole people? Like African Americans, you take them out and you say, well, they did blues and they did spirituals, but they weren't involved in this. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, when you take that out, you take out the most beautiful thing about what makes American music, actually not just American music, but any music around the world, is that it's always a, a product of cultural collaboration. You never have purity in anything, right? No tradition mm-hmm. is pure. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so when it becomes something that everybody wants, it's because of those mixed, mixed elements that people didn't respond to. And the, the cross-cultural collaboration between working-class people that it's at the heart of American music, particularly, you know, of course there's a lot of English stuff in there, but particularly at a certain point, African-Americans Irish-Americans, Jewish-Americans, you have all of these really interesting and integral mixings of people who are on the same rung, right? This is the important thing. These people are in the same economic rung for a while. Doesn't last, right? Because the ticket out is the ticket is, is to become white. And then you, you get onto the next rung. And then you, you are separated from those people that you were just with. But for a while, there is this incredible... Collaboration because that's who that's who you're living next to. That's who you you can do business with because these people are like mm-hmm. looking down on you. Mm-hmm. So you you're dealing with the people who are on the same level, and we have not looked at that nearly enough in terms of how that has created you know what 
became known around the world as American music, which is really global music, you mm. know. Mm. But like this, this is for me is the sticking point because like I'm, you know, I'm mixed race. All of all sides of my family were working class, you know, black, white, and I have native ancestry in there. And it's all from this rural, these rural parts of North Carolina. And I'm like, this is where the heart of this stuff is coming from, you yeah. know. But what they do is they go, well, y'all did this and y'all did that and you didn't ever, you know, which is total BS because yeah. as soon as people like see each other, they don't speak the same language, but they do because yeah. they can pick, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's like that is contributing to this this atmosphere of division of like we're like this and you guys are like that and it's like it's never been like that it's always been people coming together and the folks at the top are like oh if they realize that they outnumber us we're in trouble exactly so let's just yeah and music is where i can see it and where i can contribute to that yeah and a lot of it comes down to what you you said earlier on you, you just mentioned in passing about the, re- the recording of it and the recording of it and, and a documentation of it and especially around the time you're talking about the 1900s yep. 1910s who well who had the who had the kind of control of the means of recording who had the right. c- control of the means of distribution and in many ways what i'm curious about as well is that i, I like i mean in, in terms of your own career you release you release records with uh, the chocolate drops on none such you've done a couple of solo albums on none such mm-hmm. these days i can't keep up with the albums you're releasing i mean you're you're a one woman sort of record label <laughs> ecosystem you know <laughs> But I'm kind of curious about that. Did you find as you were going on that you didn't need that ecosystem and you also kind of felt, was it, was it something you were kind of tapping into that you were looking at the way the record label industry had used, used to work and kind of, that's not for me anymore. Yeah, I've just never been into, I've never been into labels anyway, you know, but yeah, the more that I researched, you know, you, you get into the guys, that, the A&R people who created race records and hillbilly records. They just created stuff out of whole cloth to sell stuff. You know, so you also have capitalism. You have the unholy mixture of capitalism and colonialism and white supremacy and it's an ugly mix you know and that's where you end up like cutting things to ribbons to make them fit into things so I was never into it and then the more I researched it the matter I got you know and people are always like well what kind of music do you play and I'm like I've just stopped playing that game I say American music that's what I do I might say roots music mm-hmm. acoustic music but that's it because ultimately I mean that was my the point that I was trying to make with Tomorrow's My Turn, which was my first solo record I did with T-Bone mm-hmm. Burnett. And all of those women, I mean, there are a lot of songs associated with some of my favorite women, but it's like Dolly Parton, it's like um, Gishi Wiley, it's it's uh, um, Nina Simone. It's For me, people were like, oh, they're, it's such variety. And I'm like, they all sound the same to me. It's all coming out of the same well. So that's what I try to do with my music is just not pay any attention to that stuff, and I'm lucky enough that I have a label that is very supportive of the artist, you know, journey. Not how can we sell this, yeah. you know. So I've, I'm very fortunate because there's not many of those I'd say out there, and none such has been kind of unf- unfailingly supportive of all of my, you know, sort of mad starts, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, since the beginning. So I have to I give them major props for that. Well, I mean, one, one of the albums you released on Nunchuck that I keep going back to and went back to an awful lot in the head of this was Freedom Highway mm. and just the songs on that I mean the songs hit, hit me over the head in terms of like I mean just the, the musical side of it for a start but then when I was diving into the lyrics and diving into the words it made, made me want to find out more when you're writing songs like that and you're kind of like I'm, I'm put, sorry, recording songs like that and putting them together are you hit by the emotional welter of what you're talking about as well? I am yeah I have to like the, those songs, especially some of the ones based on like slave narratives, mm-hmm. which I had been holding on to, I'd written earlier and I held on to for that record, um, they really kind of, they come through me in a very 
sort of intense way. I'm not, I don't really call myself a commercial songwriter. I don't, it's like I read about the stuff and I read about it and I read about it and I take it in, I take it in, and then the song kind of comes out, you know, and quite a few of those came out. And I remember I had just written, this was years ago, I had just written Julie, which is the first one that I wrote um, based on these narratives, and it's, it's a conversation between an enslaved woman and the woman who thinks she owns her, right? So mm-hmm. a mistress and, and, and the enslaved woman. And I was, I was at a concert of uh, Peggy Seekers, actually, and got to hang out with her and stuff, and I was telling her about this work that I was doing, and she said, why don't you sing that tonight on my, on my concert, you know? And I was like, really? And so that was the first time I'd ever sung Julie in public because I was doing chocolate drop stuff, and it was, you know dudes and you know it just kind of wasn't I wasn't in that space and I cried at the end and I never cried because I you know when you've been through opera like you learn how to hold it together you know because you kind of have to and I completely lost it at the end because of you know I've never done that since you know like that but it was a really it was a powerful moment for me where I kind of realized I could tell I can tell a story with this music that's really important to me and really important to my ancestors, you yeah. know, and that was that was a, a moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we started off kind of like we talking about the banjo and we sort of like, we, we talked about the banjo quite a lot in, in terms of this. Well, another thing I want to start off talking about and I, I'm kind of want to get to it is the area of kind of, I suppose, these all these different projects you're involved in, right? Like, I mean, you, you recently kind of won the uh, MacArthur Foundation, a fellowship. You know, there's also like, I mean, work you're doing with Yu-Yu Mas Ensemble. It just, it just strikes me that like, I mean, you must be really, really good when it comes to organising your calendar and like organising your schedule because there's a, there's a lot of collaborations on, on a whole lot of different planes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, to, in your mind, it's all leading into and sort of bleeding into one big narrative. Mm-hmm. But I'm just, from, from an outsider looking on, how do you manage all these collaborations? And how do you decide when to say yes and when to say no? Oh, that, you know, if I had figured that out. <laughs> well, you obviously have to some extent. Well, to some extent. I have a great team around me and I'm learning to listen to them a little bit more uh, as, as time passes. I That's do. Important. It is important. And I do tend to say yes too much to the detriment of my personal sort of sanity, but I just feel such a responsibility to the um, platform that I have and to the ability that I have. When, you, when you're as stuck in history as I am, you realize how many people in the history of this planet have not had a life a fraction as easy as I've had it. You know what I mean? In terms of our technology and our, you know, I had a fairly easy childhood and, you know, and I, and I just think that and then on top of that, you know, like cultural things about being African American and, and and all of that, I just go, what am I doing if I'm not doing as much as I can every second of every day? Mm-hmm. With you know, it's not like I'm not Beyonce. I don't have you know millions of people at my feet, but I have a small and important I think platform to use. So like that's what I try to do is I use it. I mean I'm not really watching much on Netflix and I'm not really you know I'm really this is kind of it consumes me, I think in a good way. <laughs> mm. I'm okay with that. You know, I spent enough time when I was younger watching a bunch of stuff and, and had a nice time thinking about made-up people doing made-up things. But now I'm like, I'm so focused on the history of it and what I can do, and I find such joy mm-hmm. in making those connections in ways that are unexpected or, you know, reaching across the genre divide like with Amanda Palmer or Yo-Yo Ma and and finding all the commonalities because like ultimately it's the commonality of the human experience whether in oppression or in rejoicing that I'm interested in and finding those connections I think is the way forward because 
It's only when we realize how similar we are, even, you know, we may express it differently, and that's diversity. But at the core, we are the same. Mm. We're all humans, and we're all going through the same thing. And the more that we realize that, the less those voices can can tear us apart. And I, you know, I'd like to think the less we will fight, <laughs> fight each other, you know? Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'm just a banjo player who, <laughs> you know, d- who does some things. And so I just do everything that I can to, to feed, I think the, the, the positivity of that narrative. Yeah. That's the most self-deprecating comment you made all night. I'm just a banjo player. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit, bit before we finish about this MacArthur uh, fellowship thing. Uh, the t- theatre maker, Taylor Mac, he was a, a, a inductee the same year you was. And I think he said, he said uh, that one of the things it bought him, one of the things it meant for him was freedom. It meant basically like he suddenly could start saying no a bit more. He could start picking and choosing. Have you found basically like me that you were in a similar situation? Or did, have you found, did you, did you find you had a kind of wish list of projects you wanted to do that suddenly this enabled you to do? Or was it something, something different? It, I had already said yes. <laughs> do these things and I went okay great now I'm not going to kill myself (laughs) you know doing them so it was kind of in that way I had already agreed to do an opera I had already agreed to do a ballet I'd already agreed to do things that aren't really super lucrative and take a long time and so when that came in for me it was two things that came in and I was like Okay. I mean, I didn't tour much less because I feel a lot of responsibility to my crew and to my band, you know, so yeah, I kept yeah. I kept that on the road. But what it did for me was, you know, allowed me to kind of go, okay, you know, I that wasn't stupid to t- <laughs> to take this this, you know, this thing that I think is really important to do. But it, what it also did cuz at at that point I was really kind of I've been trying to basically have a a um nonprofit uh, career in a commercial Word. setting, which is basically what I was trying to do. Yeah. And that's difficult because like none of my songs are going to be on the radio. You know, it's like, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to do this thing with my music. And so when that came along, I was pretty tired, you know, of really, of trying to, to, to pay everybody's bills with slave songs. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is, some's got to give y'all. And then that came down and I was like, okay, you know, people, are listening, they're hearing what I'm doing and they're supporting it. And that gave me the, you know, I mean, not only the financial juice, but also just the kind of, oh, I'm being recognized for mm. the work that I'm doing. It's, I'm not just kind of doing it and it's, people are noticing, you know, and they support that. So, okay, I'll keep going. You know? yeah. So it was a really, it was a big thing. Yeah. You, you were talking recently in some interview, you were talking about like the effect of kind of COVID on, on your career in this year. And you, 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 you were touring Australia when all hell broke loose and that was the end of things. But you also talking, and, and you, you talked about it there as well, and it's something that like, I just want to kind of touch on. And it's the fact that like, I mean, you, you, you feel you are responsible for the people you work with. You feel you're responsible for that crew and you've kind of looked after them along the way as well. Do you think this has been a big reckoning year for an awful lot of people in music in terms of realizing it's like the value of what they, one, the value of what they do. Two, maybe kind of like the fact that some people may not want to tour as much as before and three as well I mean obviously you know that where the where the revenue is going to come from because we have we have to eat yeah I like to think that there's going to be a reckoning I mean knowing human nature uh, I don't know if I see it coming but I think there's a potential for it I think a lot of people have realized that you know the way that things are allocated is out of whack you know that a few people at the top it's just like every other industry a few people at the top make all the money and then there's this huge group of people like here that are making some money 
And then there's this really big group down here making nothing. And it's just like people are having to work so much just to kind of put food on the table. And we're being told constantly, well, aren't you lucky you get to do something you love? And it's like, number one, how is it so out of whack that we are asked to take that as, you know, money to pay for our groceries? Like the absolute privilege of doing something that we love as if it's not hard work still, as if it's not, you know... Um, and number two, why is it so out of whack that everybody else is expected to do something they hate and get compensated by having a, a regular paycheck? Both of those things are wrong, you know. And so I think if, if we can, as, a, as an artist community, kind of come to a reckoning and go, okay, maybe we need to start demanding this. Maybe we can't take this. And we have to all kind of come together and do this. Maybe we should realize that our lives are out of whack. And, you know, I just, I think there's potential for that. I hope that good comes out of that. I know I'm going to be touring less because mm-hmm. I didn't realize how jet lagged constantly I was. I'm just so wrecked, so wrecked. And now I'm like, oh, this is what it feels like to not have jet lag. Yeah. <laughs> I've had jet lag for years, <laughs> like literally. So, you know, I, I, de- I definitely am going to take some personal stuff from it. But as a whole, I, I can only hope, you know, but it's a, it's a tall order because everybody's trying to survive, mm-hmm. you know. Thank you to Rhiannon Giddens for joining Jim Carolyn Dingle. On our next episode, I discuss how a year of disruption should change how we think about education. Joining me will be acting president of University College Cork, John O'Halloran, Dublin University Senator Lynn Ruan, and folklore lecturer Billy McGlynn. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.